Okay. Hello everyone. Shalom Aleichem. Shalom Aleichem. Aleichem. Ah. Ja. Okay. Let's uh, throw ourselves into the class. And um, it's 7.31. We'll get started. How's everyone feeling? I'm trying to see who is here. Uh -huh. Susan, are you here? Stefan? Okay. I guess not hearing anyone. So uh, let's just get started with the with the class. Okay, so this week's Torah portion is Parsha's Vayera. And the topic we're going to focus on today is the meaning of the word Vayera means, and God tells Moshe Rabbeinu, and I appeared to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And the topic we're going to talk about today is, it seems to be that we live in this understanding that God doesn't appear to us. You know, God appears to prophets, God appears to uh, great righteous holy people, but God doesn't appear to you and I, and we would have no expectations. It would be almost obnoxious to think that God would appear to us. And what I'm going to suggest is that, you know, a God that doesn't appear to me on a regular basis can't really be my God. Um, so we're going to talk about that and, and see how, how that works on a practical level. But as always, I'm just going to briefly you know, let's make a brief synopsis of the Torah portion before we jump into the main topic. So this week's Torah portion actually begins in middle of a conversation. And I want to just point out, you know, if you look at the chapter and the verse, you'll see that last week was chapter 6, verse 1. And this week starts with chapter 6, verse 2. And one would suggest, like, okay, why would we do that? Why don't we just finish last week's Torah portion one verse earlier and then start this week's Torah portion by chapter 6, verse 1? So to understand this, we need to just know a little bit of history. Um, the Torah in Jewish tradition has no chapters and has no verses. The chapters and the verses of the Torah was actually introduced by Gentiles. It was introduced in the translations of the Torah. It has been accepted in Judaism. We use it in all our holy books. All our sages use it as markers to know which verse we're talking about. But you should know that from the perspective of how we receive the, the, the Torah from Moses, there is no such thing as chapter numbers or verse numbers. It is simply broken into portions. Now, when we talk about breaking it into portions, I don't mean the parashat just as we read it on Shabbat, which was also um, divided by Moshe Rabbeinu, and then also later it was more established by Ezra. I'm talking about the portion as in, when you look at the Torah, you'll notice cer certain times that there are blank spaces for, of empty nine letters. And... That is the way the Torah was 
actually divided in Jewish tradition. So the fact that last week ended with chapter six, verse one, the reason why the Gentiles did that is because last week started a conversation and it made sense to divide that into the new chapter. However, from the Jewish perspective, we don't have that at all. So that's why the Torah portion starts in a weird situation where it's chapter six, verse two. But the way it is divided in portions is literally a hand down from Moses. So last week, Moshe Rabbeinu goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh responds by making it worse for the Jews. And Moses turns to God and says to God, Why did you make it worse for these people? You sent me to redeem them and you have not redeemed them. And God starts answering the Moses and saying, you will yet see um, what I will do to Pharaoh. And in this week's Torah portion, the conversation continues, even though it starts again with the words, and God spoke to Moses. Um, why would it do that if I already said in last week's Torah portion, and God said to Moses? And um, obviously, he's starting, and that's why the Torah portion would divide there. But it's, simply speaking, the conversation continues. God is still responding to the way Moses spoke to him. And God's telling Moses, and I appear to Avram, to Yitzhak, and Yaakov. However, I only appear to them with the names Kael. Um, I'm mispronouncing it purposely because we don't say God's name. It's A, not a K. And the next name is Shakai. Again, I'm mispronouncing it. It's really spelled S-H-A-D-A-I. Now, simply speaking, Hasidus explains that what God is actually telling Moses is that the reason why it's getting worse for the Jewish people is it's literally birthing pains because I'm going to reveal myself to the Jewish people in such a fashion in which even to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, I did not reveal myself. As it says, and the name, the ineffable tetragrammaton name, the Yud, the He, the Vov, and the He, the way God starts the Ten Commandments, and I am Yud, K, Vov, K, the, was not revealed to the forefather. And obviously, the huge question is asked because clearly God did use that name when he spoke to Abraham concerning the Brit Milah, for example. So the sage of the commentaries want to know what does he mean that he said, I didn't use that name, when in Genesis we do have that name. And the way Hasidus explains it is, if you remember from Yom Kippur, for example, we say it every day, um, well, almost every day, a day that we say Tachanon, we sing the, the 13 attributes of mercy. And the 13 attributes of mercy starts with twice the name, the ineffable tetragrammaton, the Yud Kei Vav Kei, right? I'm going to use the word Hashem, which means the name, because again, we do not say God's name in vain unless it's in prayer or in reading of the Torah. But if you remember how the, the, name, the song goes, Hashem, Hashem, Kel Rachom, Vechanon, it starts with twice Hashem, Hashem, which means that in that ineffable tetragrammaton itself, we have two different stages, we have two different levels. And therefore, Hasidus and Kabbalah explains that that level which revealed itself to Moses, to Abraham, in the name of the ineffable tetragrammaton was the lower name 
when the parsha says here, when God says, I did not reveal myself to them with that name, it means the higher name. So therefore, he does say, and the ineffable tetragrammaton, the name yud hey vav hey, I did not reveal myself to them. I'm going to reveal it to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. And therefore, they're going through that extra birthing pain. And the sages used the word that, that Egypt and the suffering of Egypt was as a smelting pot, a refinery, just as silver is refined by the heating up and removing all the impurities, so too the Jewish people were going through that. So what I'm trying to share here is that God did answer Moses, giving him a reason in why it got worse, because that's what Moses asked. And nevertheless, our sages tell us also that God was bemoaning the fact that we are the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that did not question me. And our sages explained that God said to them, I only made promises and never showed them that I'm keeping my promise. I told Abraham that this land is going to be yours, and he ends up having to pay a ridiculous price, even just to find a burial spot for Sarah. So he never got to see that I kept my promise and gave him the land. I told him that Isaac is going to be his son from which I'm going to bring forth his lineage. And then I told him to bring Isaac and bind him onto the altar as a sacrifice. And he did not question me. And the same with Isaac and the same And yet you, Moses, the first mission I send you on, you're already questioning me. Hence, our sages say, Chaval al avdin woe to those who are lost and are not found no more. Meaning that Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, they're not, I don't have them no more. I have you who is questioning me the minute we start um, our, our relationship together. Now, I'm going to give an insight to this to understand that according to the teachings, Moses was not doing something wrong. We don't find here the words by Yichar and God was angry with Moses. We don't find here that the Torah tells us that he was given a punishment for the way he spoke to God. Now, even though our sages do say, Rashi tells us that God did say to him, um, you're not going to get to see the conquering of Israel. You're only going to get to see the redemption over Pharaoh um, because of your questioning. But simply speaking, there is no consequences to the way Moses is speaking. And it seems to be that God, even though he bemoaned um, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob's blind faith, but he wasn't angry at Moses. Now, to understand why, because seemingly, I mean, let's put things here practically, okay? I'm going to share with you a story. The story is printed in a book called Roots. And over there, it has the name. It has all the details. It's a book made by Chabad. And it has a story of Chabad in England in it. And there's a story where someone who started getting close to, her, to um, Chabad in England he came to the Rebbe for a private audience, quite an affluent person, and he asked the Rebbe, Rebbe, can we go into a business partnership? And the Rebbe said yes. And the Rebbe told him to go ahead 
and to buy out a certain material. And in the book, it says exactly what type of material. It gives all the details. And he bought and he told the Rebbe, I bought the material. And he told the Rebbe how much he bought, how much he invested. And the Rebbe told him, buy more. So now he ended up taking out a mortgage on his house and he's buying more material. He writes into the Rebbe the new amount that he invested. And the Rebbe tells him, buy more. At this point, he goes and starts taking loans from friends and he's buying more materials. And all of a sudden, the price starts dropping and he begins to panic. And he writes to the Rebbe, if I sell now, I will be able to sustain my loss. And the Rebbe says, don't sell. It gets even worse. And now he writes to the Rebbe, Rebbe, I'm asking permission, please, to sell. At this point, I have lost my fortune, but at least I don't want to hurt the people who I took loans from. And the Rebbe answers him again, do not sell. And at this point, he's like, he feels, oh my God, I am totally, at this point, I'm lost. What am, you know, what am I, what am I going to do? But the Rebbe says not to, not to sell. So he doesn't sell. And at that point, at this point, he's just waiting. All of a sudden, and again, in the book itself, it has all the, the names. There was a certain fashion designer from, from Paris that all of a sudden announced that he's opening up a new line of clothing, specifically using this material. And the minute he said that, it caused the market to flip over. And all of a sudden, this, mark, this material was worth a lot, a lot of money. And the Rebbe told this person, now sell. And he made a great fortune. True to his word, he came to the Rebbe with a check. And he told the Rebbe, this, this check is the Rebbe's half of the profit. And the Rebbe told him, my half you'll give to any donation to any Jewish organization that you want. Interesting, the Rebbe didn't even tell him he has to give it to Chabad and support Chabad. The Rebbe told him whichever organization you want, my half give to charity. He, he said, okay. And then he asked the Rebbe, Rebbe, can we go into another partnership? And the Rebbe answered him, no. And he asked the Rebbe, why? You know, I kept my word. I brought the Rebbe to the last penny. The Rebbe's half of the profit. And the Rebbe told him, you're too difficult of a partner. And basically the Rebbe was telling him, no, you, you kept on panicking, you kept on asking me about selling and I had to keep on answering you no. And that's why I'm sharing with you the story. It seems to be that God could have said the same thing to Moses. You know, we just start our relationship. The first time I reveal myself to you, you go ahead and you spend seven days arguing with me that you don't want to do it. And then finally, when you do do it, the first thing that goes wrong in your estimation, and you're already questioning me, why are you doing this? Why did you send me? I should have never done this. So seemingly the way the Rebbe answered that person, you're a difficult partner. God could have answered Moses. You're, you're a difficult partner. You know, I choose you and, you know, I, I'm telling you what to do. I'm literally taking you by the hand, giving you step-by-step -step instructions. What better can anyone have than receiving direct instructions from God? And you're standing here arguing with me. And yet God doesn't say that. 
So here is a very deep message to understand. God is offering Moshe Rabbeinu a relationship that he did not offer to Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And that's what he's telling Moses here. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I did not reveal what we call Shem HaMeforesh. I did not reveal my ultimate name. I revealed to them my lower names. And what that really means is that God's telling Moses, I am offering you an intimacy with me. I did not offer that intimacy to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, what is the definition of the word intimacy? I'm going to play on something I heard, that the word intimacy should be read as in-to-me-see. Intimacy can only take place when each person in the relationship allows them to, themselves to be authentic and vulnerable. Someone who does not allow themselves to be seen is not allowing for intimacy to take place. Someone who's not allowing the other person to be seen is not allowing for intimacy to take place. An intimate relationship can only take place where both people in the relationship are being allowed to be seen and to be who they are. With this, let us understand what Hasidus and Kabbalah says about the uniqueness of Moshe versus the forefathers. We're taught in Hasidus and is brought down in other svarim that Abraham was the attribute of kindness, Isaac was the attribute of justice, or, and Jacob was the attribute of compassion. Hence, the verse refers to Avram, Avram Oihavi, Avraham, the loved. Avram loved God. The relationship was built on love. Isaac, Jacob refers to God as Pachad Yitzchak, the awe, the trembling of Isaac. Isaac's relationship was based upon its awe and, and his fear of God, while Jacob was based upon Tiferet, compassion. And therefore, that was their relationship. Moshe Rabbeinu represents the intellect. Moshe, in some teachings, is referred to as Chachma, wisdom. And in other levels, is referred to as Dat, to know, to be known. Hence, Moshe Rabbeinu is the first one that God is giving him that relationship of intimacy with God. And the reason is because at this point, God is going to give us the Torah and the sages tells us concerning the Parshish Teruma, it says, Teruma, you shall take from me a Teruma. Teruma simply means a donation when it was coming time to build a tabernacle. However, our sages say, Read the word teruma as the word Torah mem, the Torah that was given in 40 days. And it says, which doesn't mean take for me. It means take me. And our sages say, because when we study Torah, we are taking God. To know Torah 
is to know God. Hence, with the giving of the Torah that took place through Moses, it's the first time that God is offering us an intimate relationship with him, where both we get to let ourselves be known to God, and God allows us to know him. Hence, Moshe Rabbeinu's relationship is different than that of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Moshe Rabbeinu is asking God, reveal to me your ways. Let me get to know you. If you want me to have an intimate relationship with you, then I must know you. So why are you doing this? How is it in your world that you send me to bring redemption and healing to the Jewish people and you're in control of everything and the next thing I see, it's getting worse. More than that, if Moshe Rabbeinu is going to have an intimate relationship with God, he has to be able to allow, quote unquote, God to know him. Hence, Moses is voicing himself. He's voicing his question. He's voicing his frustration. And so it is with each and every one of us. God has given us a unique relationship in which we are to have intimacy with God. Hence, in our prayers, we do not just say whatever God does is okay. But rather, in our prayers, we are told to talk to God and tell God our struggles and our suffering. We are taught to study God, to know the ways of God, so that we can have an intimate relationship. This begins right here and right now with Moses having this conversation with God, questioning God, explaining and expressing his own frustration with what's going on, and God answering Moses of what he is doing, something that did not happen previously. God never explained to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob anything. God tells Abraham, leave your father's home, go to Israel. A hunger breaks out in Israel. Abraham has to leave Israel. And seemingly he could ask God, I, I don't understand. You just told me to come here. And now you're aligning up everything that I have to leave here. And God didn't explain to Abraham. So Abraham doesn't get to express himself. And neither does God get to reveal himself. That's why there was a lack of intimacy. It was more only about faith and obedience. While with Moses, built upon faith and obedience, God is saying, I want to be known and I want to know. Hence the difference in the conversation between Moses and God to the forefathers and God. Anyway, moving along. So in this week's Torah portion, we're actually... A lot of the Passover seders here, we talk about the four terminologies in which God says, I will take them out, I will save them, I will redeem them, I will take them. And these four languages of redemption is what leads to the four cups of wine by the seder. We also have a fifth language that says, and I will bring them. And I will bring them, our sages tells us, really talks about when Mashiach comes and the ultimate bringing us home will take place. Hence, that is a, a expressed by the Seder with the cup of Elijah, which is, so to speak, a fifth cup. And yet the cup of Elijah is all about redemption as Elijah will come to tell us when Mashiach comes. And then the Torah all of a sudden takes a pause 
and starts telling us about who Moses and Aaron is. And our sages want to know, why are we doing that? And it leads up to this amazing verse, which says, he is Aaron and Moses, who God said to take my children of Israel out of Egypt. That's verse 26. And in verse 27, he says, they are the ones who are speaking to Pharaoh. So our sages just tell us that there's a reintroduction of Moses and Aaron. The Rebbe points out something really amazing. In chapter, in verse 26, he uses the singular term, who Aaron Vamoisha. He is Aaron and Moses. In verse 27, it uses the plural sense, Haim, they are the ones that spoke to Pharaoh. And the question is, why? And again, the verse ends again with the singular, he is Moses and Aaron. And just, I mean, it's a beautiful talk of the Rebbe. I'm just going to give you a, a brief insight so we can move along. On one level, Moses and Aaron are one being with one mission. And that's what God tells Moses, you will be the Elohim, you will be the prince, you will be the one in control over Pharaoh, and Aaron will be your speaker. So on one hand, we should know that they're both one and the same with a mission. However, we also need to know that they're both very different. So you have the singular and you have the plural. I want to give a little bit of a deeper insight to what we're saying here. On one level, each and every Jew is part of one being, one soul, one essence with one mission. And the mission of every single Jew is the mission of the exodus of Egypt. Now, you may ask, what do you mean? The exodus took place already 3,000 years ago. So there's an unbelievable teaching that says, the verse says, like the days in which you left Egypt. And the question is that we left Egypt in one day. In one day, we left from the city on the border of Egypt to outside of Egypt. So why does it use the word plural, and the beautiful insight here is that the word Mitzrayim doesn't just mean Egypt, it also comes to the word Meitzar. We have the verse Minha Meitzar from the narrow constraints. And that means that until Mashiach comes, we are under the narrow constraints of our evil inclination, our temptations, our animalistic soul. We're not free to truly express our deepest will to be one with God and to live only in purity and holiness and in observance. So therefore, from the day that Moses took us out of Egypt, continuously we are in the journey of our exodus until Mashiach comes and we will be freed of our evil inclination and our temptations. So ultimately, each and every Jew is part of one being with one mission. And the reason we're part of one being is because within each and every one of us, there is the identical peace of God within us. Hence, there is the singular language, who, Aaron and Moshe. We're talking about two people, and we use the singular term. Because on that level, we are all one and part of one whole with one mission.
However, we also need to know that the verse after that says, Heim Hamadabrim, they, plural. Because while within each and every one of us, there is the oneness of beingness, however, we need to know that God gave each and every one of us our individual layers and talents. And there are no two people that are alike. Hence, while we're all one person with one mission, each and every one of us has a unique, different brushstroke in this mission, which in its total compilation is the totality of the mission. Hence, we need to know that each and every one of us has to use our individual way of thinking, our individual perceptions, our individual feelings, our individual talents and gifts to be able to bring our portion of the redemption to the entire world. Hence, you have the double language. And after that, it goes back to the story of how Moshe Rabbeinu is with Aaron are speaking to Pharaoh. It tells us that Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So right here, we have a very interesting concept, you know, with this whole notion that at 63 or 65 retirement, Moses took on the greatest part of his destiny and mission in life at the age of 80. So um, in Judaism, there is no retirement. There's a shifting from physical labor to more intellectual labor. Ultimately, the human being eventually evolves into what we call being a sage, carrying the experience of life, but continuously growing. At any day that we stop growing, we stop living. There's an unbelievable line, my friends, from Benjamin Franklin that goes like this. Some of us die at the age of 25, only that we get buried at the age of 75. That is a very deep message of this week's Torah portion. We should not die a day before we die. We should be alive every day of our life. Now, let's go further. Moses comes to Pharaoh and he turns the stick into a snake. He, as, as he was told by God, he tells Aaron to throw down the stick. The stick turns into a snake. Aaron laughs and Aaron says, I quote to you the words of our sages. Um, I'm sorry, Pharaoh laughs. And the sages say that Pharaoh said, are you serious? You're coming into a perfume store to sell us perfume. This is the land of sorcery. You're going to show us a couple of uh, cheap tricks here. And that's why, just to point out to you, it isn't until the third plague where all of a sudden the sorcerers tell Pharaoh, Etzpa Elokimhi, this isn't sorcery. Sorcery cannot deal with anything smaller than the size of a mustard seed. Um, this is the finger of God. But before that, Pharaoh was really, so uh, you got sorcery and we got sorcery. Um, you're really trying to impress me and scare me with it. And also I want to point out that in the beginning, it does not say in God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. It says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. God's hardening only starts in the latter, in the latter plagues. And Maimonides explains that part of the punishment of sin is that when we keep on doing it and we keep on doing it and we keep on doing it, 
we make it very difficult for us to stop doing it. Um, and that's what was taking place here. Anyway, let's jump into the, the plagues quickly. So just that you understand how this worked, according to our sages, almost every plague, not the 10th plague, but almost every, not the first nine plagues, basically Moses for three weeks would warn and one week the plague would be. So every plague lasted a month. Again, besides the 10th the, the one. Now, what happens is Moses is warning him, if you don't let the people go, if you don't let the people go, he tells them what the plague's going to be. So there is no trying to, you know, do the magic trick. Look here, look here, look here. And then all of a sudden, boom, from the other side. No, he's very upfront. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. And the first thing is that the water is turned into blood. Why? Our sages says when God smites a nation, he begins with their deity to let them know there is no escape. So the deity of Egypt was the Nile River. Hence, God begins the plagues with the Nile River. And it begins with the plague of blood. And Jen, as you know from the Passover seders that you've sent, that you've celebrated, you know the plagues from there goes to the frogs. And from there, it goes into the lice. Now, I want to share with you, just point out something. If you look in the verse concerning the frogs, in verse 2, it says, Batal Hatsvardeya. And the frog came out of the water. Now, the question is, why does it use it singular? So Rashi says, very interesting. There's two ways of looking at it. One, it could be talking about the species. And the frog, meaning the frogs. But nevertheless, the verse does use when it wants the plural language. So why does it use over here the singular? And Rashi tells us that really only one frog jumped out of the Nile River. And as the Egyptians were hitting it, it was multiplying. Now, here is a very interesting lesson. How many times when something happens, something that we're not happy with, instead of just accepting it, and let it stay contained, we go to war. And as we go to war, we cause the pain to grow. Like, hello, Egyptians, you hit it once and it multiplied. You think you should stop hitting it? But they wouldn't stop. They kept on and they kept on and they kept on. And from that one frog, the entire land of Egypt was covered with frogs. It's an important lesson that sometimes, not sometimes, let's say every time, what happens to us from heaven is sustainable. But when we go into a rage and we're going to show God and we keep on fighting and hitting and this, we are causing it to multiply and to multiply and to become unsustainable. I want to share with you one more thing about the frogs, which really I'm going to jump ahead. Later, we're going to see, not this week, but later we're going to see when the Jewish people leave Egypt, we're taught that because the dogs didn't growl at us, therefore, we feed the dogs with non-kosher meat. When meat is not kosher, instead of throwing it out, 
It says we should feed it to the dog. Why? Because Because the dogs didn't growl at us. They didn't grind their teeth. So one of my friends, a classmate, shared with me an unbelievable thing. It says about the frogs that they went into the ovens in the mission of God. That means that they went on a suicide mission, some of them. So why don't we reward the frogs? All the dogs did was they didn't bark. They stayed quiet. We're making a whole big thing that for generations and generations, generations, we quote the verse, we quote the teaching of our sages that God is not mekapeach. He doesn't hold back the reward from any creature. The dogs remain quiet and God says we have to reward them. What's about the frogs? Why don't we feed the frogs? The frogs actually jump to their death in order to bring the plague about. My classmate told me an unbelievable answer. He says, from here we see it's easier to jump into the fire than to keep our mouth shut. Hence, what the dogs did was more difficult. And I want to just share with myself and each and every one of you, the biggest challenge sometimes is to keep our mouth shut, not to say something, whether it be in gossip, understanding that we only have the right to share our story. Other people's stories are not ours to share, number one. Number two, not everything do we have to make a comment about. That's the lesson of why we feed the dogs and not the frogs. Okay, going further, we're now talking about the lice. Just want to share with you quickly. All of black magic has its source in Torah. What do I mean? What I mean is the Torah says that he who does sorcery is put to death. It's punishable by death. If sorcery wasn't real, then we wouldn't be put to death for doing it. Which is why whenever I have a magic show for the kids, if I make a holiday program and to entertain the kids, I bring a magic show. I tell the magician, start with your worst trick because you're going to have to show the kids how you do it because I need the kids to know that we do not practice sorcery. And they'll usually won't be happy about it, but they have no choice if they want to get hired. So they take their cheapest trick and they actually show the kids and they tell the kids nothing here is real magic. It's all about the hand being quicker than the eye. But true magic does exist according to the Torah. It's called Kishuf. Now, what is true magic? What is black magic? So. What black magic is, according to the Torah, whether it was done on Monday or done on Thursday, the sages to argue about which day they were created, but there were demons that were created. Shadim do exist. It's talked about in the Talmud. It does exist. Spirits, just like there's physical beings that have a body and a soul, there are spiritual, extraterrestrial, celestial beings, which are demons, and they live upon earth. There's a whole story about King Solomon, who had to deal with the king of the demons, Ashmedai. Anyway, what happens is that one of the things that demons are able to do because of their not their, their body not being made out of primarily the elements of earth and water, but rather of fire and air, they're able to have what we call shift. They're able to shift their, their bodies into different forms. 
Black magic simply explained is the use of the human being controlling the demons to do or to take on the shapes that they want to take. Hence, I want to share with you what that means. What that means is that when Moses produced a frog, it was a real frog. When the Egyptian sorcerers produced frogs, they weren't real frogs. Rather, they were demons that were through connotations, through different uh, connotations, different wording, they actually had, they controlled the demons to change forms. By the way, there is an interesting teaching on the words abracadabra, that they're really two Hebrew words, Aramaic words, avracadabra, create as I speak. And that's what it's all about from the Torah's perspective. So this sorcery did exist. However, there's a rule. There's certain rules that we have that the Talmud tells us. One of the things is that a demon, a, you cannot control, they cannot control anything smaller than the size of a mustard seed. Hence, in the third plague, when God introduces lice, God's doing so purposefully to send a message. Moses is not a sorcerer. He's my boy doing my work. Okay, and that's why all of a sudden, they say, the sorcerers in verse 15 say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, and we can't do this. Okay, then after that, there's the wild beast. And then, I mean, and then just going through this week's Torah portion has seven of the 10 um, plagues. It goes all the way to the ones of the boils. And at that, I'm sorry, all to the ones of the hails. And that's where it stops. And then next week, we're going to continue with the last three. Okay, that was a very brief um, understanding of the Torah portion. Because I briefly go through the Torah portion in order that we should be able to focus on the topic that I chose. So we're talking about a peer. So I want to share with you a very interesting question. Rashi, his name was Rab Shlomo Yitzchaki, hence he's called Rashi, Reish Shin Yud, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki. He lived in the 11th century. He lived in old France. And what's unique about him is, and the reason why he is the first commentary taught to every single child as they start learning the Torah is because he himself says again and again, Ani lo basi mikra. I have come only to give the simple interpretation. So while other commentaries will get homiletic, they will get legal, um, uh, they will do all different types of teachings. Rashi will refrain from any of that. He just wants to teach the child a simple interpretation. Hence, when Rashi says something, we need to ask ourselves, why is Rashi saying this? And when Rashi doesn't say something that other commentaries do say, we need to ask why Rashi isn't saying it. And the answer will always be because in the simple interpretation of the verse, this has to be said or this doesn't have to be said. Based on this, I want to share with you something that Rashi says that seemingly does not have to be said. In the second verse of this week's Torah portion, the verse reads, and I have appeared, God is talking, and I have appeared to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Rashi takes the word, and I have appeared, and he says, El Ha'avot, to the forefathers. And the question is, hello, we just finished the entire book of Genesis. Every single student knows who Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov is. And the Torah itself says, and I appear to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Why does Rashi have to tell us that I appear to the forefathers? If the verse says Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, and each and every one of us know that Abram, Isaac, and Jacob were our forefathers. So why does Rashi have to say anything? Rashi should have just let it be. God said everything that has to be said. And I appeared to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. And the five-year-old studying Chumash knows exactly what that means. That's the simple question. And the answer is very interesting. I want to share with you two answers. One answer I saw from the Rebbe, blessed memory. And the Rebbe says like this. God is telling Moses that I appeared to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob not because they were righteous people. I appeared to them because they were the forefathers of the Jewish people. Now the question is, so, so what? The answer is that if God appeared to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob because of who Abram, Isaac, and Jacob was, then that means that only Abram, Isaac, and Jacob could merit that. Which means that everyone that learns this Torah portion is going to say, okay, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob merited that God appeared to them, but I did not merit and God won't appear to me. Therefore, Rashi tells us that God told Moses, I appeared to them not because they were righteous, but because they were the fathers of the Jewish people. And what that means is, according to Jewish law, the father, when he passes away, everything that he has is inherited by his offspring. Hence, you should know that I appear to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob as the fathers of every single Jew. Hence, every single Jew inherited that they merit that God appears to each and every one of them. Hence, God's telling Moses, I did not just appear to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, but rather I appeared to each and every single Jew. Okay, that sounds nice poetry, but it doesn't sound real. I don't think anyone in this uh, Zoom class can tell me that, well, oh yeah, I saw God, God spoke to me in a burning bush, not this, not that, no. So what does that mean? What does it mean that God's telling Moses that you should know I appear to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob as forefathers so that they inherited to each and every one of their offspring that I appear to each and every one of them individually. What does that mean? So for this, I'm going to share with you another story. It was about 120 years ago. It was in the year 5667. The fifth Lubavitch Rebbe was then alive, Rabbi Shalom Dovber of Lubavitch. And he was working with other Rebbes of different Hasidic dynasties in Russia to protect the Jewish people from the decrees of the government. And because of that, there was constant communication between all these Rebbes. One of these Rebbes had to ask the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe 
how he should handle a certain local thing with the government. So he sent one of his Hasidim to Lubavitch to meet with the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe to ask him advice. He arrived to the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe in the year 5667, just understand we're now in the year 5782, which is why I said about 120 years ago. So in the year 5667, he arrives to the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe for Shabbat Parshas Va'era. And they let the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe know that the other Rebbe's chassid is here on a mission from his Rebbe to speak to the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe. And the Rebbe Rishab answered, let him come in to my home after Shabbat for Malava Malka, we'll sit and we'll talk. Okay. No, comes Shabbos is over. And that chassid comes to bring his Rebbe's questions to Rav Shalom Dober of Lubavitch. And as he comes in and he sits down by the table, Rav Shalom Dober of Lubavitch turns to his son, yet an only child, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, which was the previous Rebbe. And he says, Yosef Yitzchak served tea. So the previous Rebbe served tea to his father and to the guest. And the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe, you know, we always start with words of Torah. So he said, did you hear the sermon I gave yesterday. And he said, yes, I was there. He says, no, did you understand? Can you repeat something? And he said, no, I'm unfamiliar with this topic that the fifth of our was talking about. So the Rebbe Rashab said, okay, so why don't you share with me a Dvar Torah from your Rebbe? So he said, okay. The Chosid told the fifth of our as follows. He asked the question which I just placed before you. Why does Rashi say the era and he appeared? Ella of us to the forefathers. We know, we know who Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov is. And then he said, my Rebbe gave the following answer. The word Av comes from the word Abba, which means father. And that's why the word Ha'avot simply means to the forefathers. However, he said that there's another word, which means Ava. For example, the verse says, the word ova means to want. The verse says they don't want to listen. So he told the Rebbe Rashab that my Rebbe gave a taich, an explanation, an interpretation that Rashi is telling us, God says, I appear, you know to who? El ha'avot, to those who want, from the word ova, from those who want to see me, I appear. Okay. The fifth about Rebbe turns around to his son and says, Yosef Yitzchak, did you hear that? He repeats the question and he repeated the answer to his son. End of story. What does this mean? My friends, you probably heard the famous, the famous uh, story that rabbis love to tell in high holiday sermons. So there's this person, he was running late to a meeting. He couldn't find a parking space. He looks up to God and he says, God, if you find me right now a parking space, I will give a $10,000 donation to my synagogue. And sure enough, a car pulls out of a parking spot right in front of him. And he says, oh, no, God, it's okay. Don't worry. I found it by myself. What's the message of this story? So I want to share with you Another interesting insight. In last week's Torah portion, it says that Moses saw the burning bush. The fire was burning and burning, but the bush was not consumed. 
So I want to share with you something that most people do not pay attention to. It says right there, and Moses said, how awesome is this sight? Let me turn to it and see it. Moshe says, Asura no ve'ere. Let me turn my attention to and see this awesome sight. I want to share with you the next verse right after that. Vayar Hashem and God saw, ki saw Lirois, that Moshe turned his attention to see. And only then does it say, Vayikra Elov Elokim, and God called out to him from the burning bush. Interesting. What's going on here? God waits to see that Moses is going to stop and pay attention to what's going on. And then when God sees that he stopped and he paid attention, God says, he's the one, let me talk to him. My friends, in order for God to be my God, God must appear to me. I can't have a God who only talks to me through an ancient book. I need a God who talks to me every single day. If not, he's not my God. He's not involved in my practical life. Yes, he gives me rules. Yes, I listen to the rules, but I cannot say he is my God who holds me by the hand and walks me through every step of life. The only way I can say that about God is if God is continuously appearing to me. Now, here's an important line to remember. Coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. And now we have a choice. And now let me repeat what that Rebbe said about this Rashi. Va'era, God says, I am continuously appearing to each and every one of you. You want to see me? El ha'avos, you have to want. If you don't want to see me, you won't see me. My friends, I venture to say that if tomorrow at 7.10 and you're running late to get to work and there was a burning bush in your front yard that's not being consumed, you would barely notice it. You definitely wouldn't stop to look at it because we're in a rush. And when we get into an elevator and we happen to meet this one person, we happen to have a conversation, we happen to get his business card, and all of a sudden a total turn in career takes place, we would never stop to say, God put me in that elevator next to that person, pushed me to start a conversation, and now my entire life was guided by God in a new direction. Hence, I want to share with you, God is your God only if God appears to you. And God does appear to you every single day. Now the question is whether you will allow yourself to see God. Hence, the era, God says, I appear and I am seen. El ha'avot, only by those who want to see me and don't want to live in the comfortability of everything's a coincidence. I don't have to face that God is consistently talking to me, guiding me, and leading me. That is the ultimate message 
of the opening of this Torah portion. So my friends, I suggest something very simple. I've suggested this once before in this platform and I will suggest it again. Most of us live in a relationship with God of victimhood. I clearly believe that everything that ever went wrong in my life was done by God. I'm a believer. God does everything. Doesn't make a difference that I made poor choices. Is God in control or not? So every consequence I've ever had to suffer is simply I am a victim of God's doing. All of a sudden, I'm a huge believer. When it comes to the dance of victimhood, I am a huge believer in God. God does all of this to me. However, when it comes to gratitude, I'm not that quick to believe that God does everything. Hence, I want to share the quickest and shortest and most surest route to want to see God and to have God appearing to me on a daily basis is to make a gratitude list every single day. I would like to propose that each and every one of us from now, let's just start with 30 days. And if you don't see a difference in your life, stop. For the next 30 days, I would like to propose that before we go to sleep, we make a gratitude list of five things that God did for me today that I am grateful. Now, most of us become extreme. Oh, I have to thank God for huge things. And I don't know that anything huge happened today. No, it's okay to thank God that I had supper tonight. It's okay to thank God that I am healthy. It is okay to thank God that my spouse is healthy. It's okay to thank, we can thank God for the little things. But what that's going to do is it's going to create within us to be a voice, to want to see God, to want to see God in the positive sense. And slowly but surely, we will become the true inheritors of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to who God is appearing continuously, giving us guidance, holding us by the hand. People, thank you.